Welcome to New World of Work, a podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce. I'm Rhys Black, Head of Workplace Design at Oyster, a global people operations platform making it easier than ever to build a brilliant team on an international scale. On New World of Work, we'll hear from some of the world's best and brightest people and culture experts and cutting-edge topics that people ops professionals need to hear today, all through a global lens. Join us as we navigate this new world of work together and learn more from each other along the way. As the late Wayne Dyer famously said, when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. This is true for any pursuit in life, and it's a philosophy we can seamlessly apply to people operations. In today's episode, we'll be exploring how a simple mindset switch, or even a shift in language, can change everything. I sat down with Oyster's very own Chief Workplace Officer, Mark Freund, to hear his perspective on the mindset changes we can all make to lay the groundwork for successful people operations. To kick off the episode, Mark shared a bit about his career background and why he chooses to view the business world as a performance. When I began my career, I really began it as an educationalist, as a learning as a learning designer, and someone whose craft was to take how we learn as individuals, especially how we learn as leaders and professionals and business people, and translate that into programs that would help people within businesses themselves gain a lot of the skill and competency that we often taught and still teach in business schools. So I was with a a major business school in Canada, and we were basically translating business school content into workplace practical applied education. And that was phase one. And I came to that by virtue of being a, um, I did my graduate degrees in education, but I also had a really strong interest in the world of design and also the performing arts. So coming out of university, I was either going to go to grad school or I was going to become a director of theater. And so a lot of my, the way I think about, especially the way I thought about the creation of learning for business people was around how do we, how do we create performances and explore kind of the theater of the business world and how do we get people to to think and act and work um, as if they're literally learning how to create better performances of of business. Uh, That was phase one. I did that for a number of years. And then I went more directly into consulting work. And for almost a decade, I I built up and then ultimately ran as a general manager first and then CEO second, a professional services consulting firm that focused very, very explicitly on uh, helping people be better managers and leaders and executives. And the firm that we built um, ultimately was working with uh, folks around the world. And we were using, uh, effectively, like we were helping people play at being better managers and leaders. And when I say play, what I mean by that is play seriously but experiment with how they are better versions of themselves as managers and leaders. And we had a lot of fun. We were goofy at times. We were cutting edge at times. We were progressive. We were experimental. And, um, you know, we had our executives, you know, play with Legos. We had our executives do cases that had to do with colonizing 
planets out in the solar system. It was, it was really, sometimes I even look back and surprise myself about how off the wall it was, but the purpose of all of it was to stretch people to grow as business leaders. And that, that really helped me think about how we bring joy to work and how the joy in work also helps us grow and helps create a sense of fulfillment. It also happened to be that all of my clients were heads of uh, people or HR teams in various size companies. So I increasingly got to understand the way the world looked from uh, the outside in, at least for people who had challenges of building and running great workplaces themselves in that position. And one of my clients at the tail end of that journey, that particular phase two, I sound like I'm talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, phase one, phase two, phase, but that end of phase two, one of my clients asked me to come and take the head of HR position. And that was a startup out of New York. And the rest, the you know, phase three, the phase I'm in now is all about being a chief people officer or similar title at venture-backed uh, software and startup companies. And that is a 10 year plus journey that I'm on right now. And, and each time I get in the seat, you know, the captain's chair of, um, of the people, or now we're calling it workplace here at, at Oyster, each time I get into that chair, I think about what can I continue to do to push the envelope on making a workplace both highly effective at delivering what it's supposed to deliver, but also increasingly human and humanistic. Sometimes people set up you know, a, an efficient business and a humanistic environment as somehow oppositional or on two different sides of a spectrum. I actually think that, that being a great business for people and being a great business period, like in terms of bottom line, top line, all those things that we care about from a business standpoint overlap very cleanly. Like if you're doing one really well, you're also going to do the other really well. They don't need to be sacrificed in the least. So that's the journey I've been on and where I'm at today. And each day I see if I can figure out a new way to do it better. There's many dimensions to how I think about a philosophy of, let's just say, contemporary people operations. But I'll, I'll focus in on the question of why I used the word performing earlier in the context that I did. If we focus really in on you know, why I choose to use the word performing, but maybe in a little non-standard way. When we talk about performance management, in most contexts in, the, in, the, in people operations today, we are thinking about that act of giving somebody a review, for example, you know, managing their performance, managing their outputs, managing maybe their inputs, making sure that they're delivering value to the company. For me, it is, is a very limited way of using that word. It also, is a, it also can end up feeling kind of mechanistic and also controlling. So the reason why I use the word performance in a little bit of a broader sense is actually performance is a wonderful word when we think about it in some of the ways it's used in different contexts. So I am going to go and see a performance of Hamlet. I am going to go and see uh, a performance by a band that I like. I'm going to go and see a, a live performance of jazz. When we think about how we use that word in those contexts, what we're talking about is we're going to go and see people doing something together or, you know, our soloist, for example, creating, a, creating putting on uh, for our viewing pleasure and engagement, entertainment, something that is stimulating, uplifting, challenging, moving, all of the little pieces and parts that we think about when it comes to watching, quote unquote, a performance. We can also think about it when it comes to athletics teams, you know, the the way that team performed today didn't win them the medal. 
just literally today, Canada beat the U.S. And so I'm, I'm American. My wife is uh, Canadian. She was very happy to come in to me and tell me that Canada had won the gold at the current Olympics. And we would say, you know, well, U.S. didn't perform. These to me are the words that give us more insight into what we might think about when it comes to, quote unquote, managing performance. Performing in the business context isn't unlike these other, these other domains. It is, it is an outcome. It is an output. But it's also something that takes place, you know, in real time by human beings doing things together. And sometimes we're reluctant to use the word performance to describe what happens in the business world in a similar way as to what say happens on stage, like for a theater, because, well, they're, they're just, they're just acting. But what we're doing day to day in the business world is like, it's, we're not acting, you know, it's really serious. Well, of course, if we went and talked to a troop of actors putting on Hamlet, they, they would take great offense reasonably if we said, well, what you're doing isn't serious, <laughs> but they're, they're, they're also doing really serious stuff. They're trying to put on a great performance. So I think a lot of the distinctions break down but what helps us with thinking about those analogs when it comes to the world of work is we care about what happens. Like if I have a team developing a piece of work, I care about the output. I also care about what it looks like. I care about uh, how they show up together. And, you know, if we start to think about it a little bit like an acting troupe, you're up, you're up on stick. Hey, project team. You got to deliver the project, but I also want to watch how you work together in delivering the project. What are the relationships? Does it feel good? Are you supporting each other? Are you building on each other's ideas? Those are the, the same kinds of relationships and interactions that happen in jazz bands, orchestras, athletic groups, theater groups. A lot of the attention when it comes to those performances is actually on relationship and connectivity. And we can use the same strategies when it comes to what happens in the work world. I love Mark's unique perspective on viewing business as a performance, similar to the way we think about an athlete competing at the Olympics or a band performing a set. He believes we can bring the same passion, connectivity and drive to the business world. Mark recently signed on as Oyster's chief workplace officer just a few months ago. But from the moment he spoke with our founder and CEO, Tony, he knew the company would be a great fit for him. Inspired by the company's vision and mission, Mark felt it was time for a change after a challenging two years. It's been a tough time for heads of HR over the last couple of years for all sorts of reasons that I, I think people hopefully understand is relatively straightforward. I mean, it has been the carrying the emotional weight of COVID, of you know, complicated political situations locally here in the United States, but elsewhere, having people start the great resignation, you know, roughly about three to four months ago, seeing all that through has led to a lot of uh, burnout and fatigue amongst heads of HR, especially in startups. And I'm no exception. I was coming about, before I came to Oyster, I was coming out of some work that was really fulfilling and also really, really fatiguing. And I, I wasn't looking for a job. So you know, so how did I get here? Well, I had a conversation with our founder and CEO, Tony. And what was sent to me as, a, as an intro email was, you know, we are building a mission-oriented company to change the way companies find talent, uh, employ globally, and ultimately how literally, how we distribute more equitably opportunity in the tech startup industry worldwide. 
And maybe it's just my age and how long I've been doing this. I was skeptical to say, like, I, I think I raised an eyebrow at it and I thought this sounds too good to be true. I don't know. I'll, I'll wait and see what the founder is like. But I decided to take a call with Tony. And in a first call, I realized that well, I, I dropped a lot of my feelings of being jaded and, and some cynicism. And I realized, oh, okay, he genuinely wants to create this company for reasons that align very strongly with the reasons that I would, the reason, things that I care about as well, especially around humanism at work, about opportunity, about lack of opportunity and solving that problem in the, in the sector. And I walked away from that call moved, like actually moved. I thought, oh, I need to think a little bit differently about this. So that started, I guess, my, my thinking about Oyster. And then I had a series of conversations with a bunch of people here over a couple months. And each person I talked to also was here for the same basic reasons. And that really convinced me that ultimately the people who are signing up to be aboard this great experiment, great ship Oyster, are here to make a difference. And uh, I guess at this point in my life and my career and the things I care about, that sold me 100%. At that point, it became an easy decision. I can see how a simple mindset shift of viewing business as a performance can help to drive a company forward in the early growth stages. Mark shared another subtle language shift that may seem insignificant, but can really transform the way a company does just about everything. In people operations especially, it can be helpful to take the approach of viewing everything from a policy document to an offer letter as a product in itself. Someone who lives here in Austin, who is a friend, peer, etc., is named Kevin Fishner, and he um, was one of the early founders of a company called HashiCorp. And on the operational side, he's talked a lot about platforming the company as a product from an operational point of view. The traditional people function is one where we as people professionals often feel like we are the last bastion of humanity and thinking about the employees as human beings. So there can be a resistance to thinking about to using the language of productizing because it feels like suddenly we are, we are engineering the human dimension of a company. Uh, so I get it. Like I, I've worked with teams, I've worked with a number of teams now where some of the first early reactions to some of the thinking about productizing a workplace or people function is met with a little bit of skepticism because it's we, you know, being people professionals, we don't want to have the language of kind of mechanized production colonize in a negative way the way we think about treating people. So that's something to just keep in mind. Like what, when we use this language, does it allow us to get closer to serving the humans in a company or does it pull us further away? I feel that adopting this approach and this language to thinking about developing programs for people in companies gets us closer to the humanity because it forces us into thinking about design. Um, when we think about what really, really undergirds the modern, let's say, pr like software product movement, like all the things we have on our phones these days and all of the ways that we've inherited, you know, good and bad methods for doing things and all the innovations we have that are now, you know, powering almost everything we do. A lot of it comes from the elegance of thinking about design in a different way. And, and you know, you can, you can theorize all sorts of roots, but, you know, obviously Apple 
And Steve Jobs had a lot to do with this, but other people did as well. And user-centered design is older than any of the technology um, that we're currently using, but it certainly had a lot of role to play. And all that you're doing with the product language in terms of where you start is it brings you away from thinking about something in service of your interests towards something in service of someone else's interest who needs to use it. That's all that really goes underneath any of the thinking that I try to bring to my teams on a productized mindset or a design mindset is how can you think about creating things that people can use and feel great about using. And interestingly, a lot of the traditional ways of thinking about, let's say, HR often start with what do we need to put into place to be compliant? Like what do, what do we need to do to serve either the business or to serve what we believe is in the best interest of our employees? Now, you do have to do all those things. Like if you, if you have compliance um, requirements for where you're operating, you're going to have to be compliant. But even there, there's a way to do that with the eye towards the user. And that's really all it's about. So if you think about it, back to the original question, doing this with a product mindset is just putting the user at the front of the process, not the back of the process. If we can do that uh, with rigor, I strongly believe we're going to have better experiences for the, for the human beings in the business. Viewing the business as a product sounds like a great idea in theory, but how can we as people operations leaders implement this in practice? Mark suggested taking notes from great designers and marketers like Steve Jobs, who constantly iterated on his products to make the next version better than the last. Between Envision and here, I've, I've done some of this in various scales. How you implement it is largely how you would implement any, I would call it functional build or program build at any other company that's trying to design and build their, their people practices or similar practices. So people or internal service um, practices. There are a few operational differences that are at least partly mindset and then also require different thinking about the way you resource and in some cases the kind of staff that you need. Uh, so one resource that I increasingly feel is really important in the modern people function is, for lack of a better terminology, like an agile a program manager or a scrum a program manager for the people slash workplace function. Now, many smaller companies will not have budget for all sorts of reasonable reasons to go and hire a, a, a scrum professional. But at a certain size, I think it's really important. Um, the reason being is someone who can help a team work really well as a team at both thinking as a, a product team, but also working in the, in the iterative pacing and chunking that happens with good agile work is invaluable because it teaches professionals who have traditionally worked in a more, let's just call it longer form waterfall implement the perfect solution mentality, it helps them unlearn some traits around that. Now, in people functions, we often do have a high bar for, let's just call it releases, for product releases, meaning it's probably worse to release a half-made policy on certain kinds of leave than release nothing at all. <laughs> if I release a, a lack of clarity or too much of a sketch of that policy, it may make people more confused, 
less able to make decisions. So there is um, a natural gravitation, I think, in, uh, in people teams to be worried about releasing things that, are, that they might feel are iterative. So what a good scrum person does or agile person does is they help professionals who, have the, who, who don't have that background, say out of a product team or a design team or an engineering team, realize that you can still release product. And I, again, I'm using product in most general terms. I can still release a policy as a product, a service as a product. I can still release bits of it that are clear and solid, but not necessarily what it will look like after another year of iteration. I have to just, I have to scope my work so that it's usable. And I like to say lovable. The interesting thing is, is it will be more fleshed out on the basis of contact with users. Not because you sat in a room and scripted everything for three months and then came down from on high, but because you released incrementally usable and lovable product and you got customer feedback. And then you built on that and then you built on that. And it actually incorporates more of the user feedback into the product, which is an absolutely crucial element of good product design when it comes to all the products that we know and love. I got the minimum level product from Clark Ballberg, the founder of Envision. So I props to Clark. I will, I want to make sure that I recognize where, where, the, where these ideas come from, at least if I can remember. So that, this is the way we talked about it at Envision. And I, I really gelled to that, that term. And the reason why we use that term there is that minimum viable seemed like an overly low bar. <laughs> I mean, we we're used to, you know, MVP, and if we think about minimum viable product, it's like, well, what barely scrapes past the benchmark for usability? <laughs> I think we can do better than that and even still be fast and agile and do better than that. So it's, it's like, what kind of product can we put in the hands of users that scratches an itch, solves a problem, but they also enjoy interacting with? Now, when it comes to implementation, I would say, uh, in addition to agile or scrum resources, a resource that I really, really like to put into place when, when I can, um, when I'm building a, a workplace function or a people function, either by borrowing it, usually from marketing or somewhere else, or by going and hiring for it, is design. Actual UX design. Somebody whose job it is, is to help the releases that we make out of the people function or replace function feel, look, sound, behave, in a way that will surprise and delight. The average policy document that we might release is going to be a PDF or a Word document or something that is text heavy and doesn't have a lot of, let's just call it attention to the, user, the user's interaction with that, that piece of work. So how can we actually create offer letters, for example? How can we create agreements? How can we create things that are traditional products that are used by people teams, very transactionally even, that have a design element to them where someone opens their offer letter into their inbox? The first interaction where we send a letter of offer to somebody is a key user touch point. And we don't often think about it. Out these things pop from our applicant tracking systems or other automated engines, they often have, they're often pretty sterile in terms of document. There's a lot of verbiage. A lot of it is, is legal verbiage, not that legal verbiage is bad, but that the experience of reading that and interacting with that document can often feel a little flat. So 
how do you create an offer letter, a standard offer letter template? In some, in some ways, not a terribly crucial thing to look and feel great. Well, how can we make that a moment where I, it comes into my inbox, I'm a little curious. It doesn't look like what I thought it was going to look like. I open it. My first experience is, you know, imagine, I mean, just literally imagine, you know, we chose you first big letters name. Like we chose, we choose you, Mark. We really hope that you will join us. Imagine a little picture of every single member of the hiring team there, you know, throwing a little bit of a party. Now that takes a lot of work <laughs> to design that, right? But good product matter. You could design that as a template. You could get all the stuff together. You could make it automatic. You could make it automated. But we just don't simply think about it because we're not thinking about the user opportunity there. But imagine if you got an offer letter that the first experience of being chosen and picked by the company blew your socks off. Imagine how much more zest and energy you would walk in on your first day and imagine how it would make you feel. So all of that, like if you can picture in your head what would be the optimal offer letter experience, maybe you can't build that out of the gate, but good design, including a good visual designer, might let you build something that very few other companies currently contemplate. It will be differentiating. It will be engaging. It will create a really good sense of kind of first step culture integration. And it's actually not that much heavy lifting. We just don't turn design to some of these artifacts. So when I can either, like I said, beg, borrowing, getting resource help to, to use design emphasis on even the most transactional of documents or artifacts that we use in a workplace function, I love to do it. Having begun his career in education, Mark is passionate about lifelong learning and development. He's brought this passion into all his roles in the world of PeopleOps. And over the years, he's discovered new ways of making learning more fun for employees. Because let's face it, sometimes corporate training sessions aren't exactly a walk in the park. But more importantly, Mark has learned the value of infusing everything he does with the power of storytelling. As humans, we've been hardwired since prehistoric times to empathize with a compelling narrative. By including elements of storytelling in everyday training sessions, it will be easier to connect with your audience and help them understand the meaning behind the information. Mark used the example of a routine security training. He suggested that instead of positioning it as a mandatory item on a to-do list, we can instead bring the training to life by reminding the team that it's an essential component of keeping everybody under the company umbrella safe from hackers. There's a lot of room to disrupt education. And I think over the next 20, 30 years, education in general will be reinvented and disrupted. So the reason why I start there is I would just say, it's hard to convince people that learning is interesting at all, frankly. And when I sit them down in a workplace setting, and often I tell them, you must attend the following training, there's an immediate like hives breakout on people. And they, and they remember all of their educational experiences that weren't pleasant. And they immediately have a allergic reaction to the idea of especially mandatory training. So I have tended to approach internal training differently. A couple of strategies that I've used that have worked very well. One, you know, going back to the things we've already talked about, create a minimum delightful, lovable experience, boil it down to a nugget that 
is going to really surprise, almost shock people out of complacency around learning. Something that's just so adorable and fascinating, they're blown away. Doesn't have to be big, doesn't have to be long, can be nice and simple. And then let word of mouth inside the company market that thing for you. So think a little bit like a marketer when it comes to these things. Iterate and build, build a bunch of little things. See which ones stick. See which ones people like. Let them be your evangelists. The, there are many circumstances where companies have to put on mandatory training. Security, workplace behavior, discrimination, et cetera. The vendors who I've seen build this stuff, even these things really well that are mandatory, tend to approach it with a sense of playfulness. Let's create a little bit of theatrics, a little bit of storytelling, a little bit of something that you, you get pulled in by the narrative. Because we reasonably don't want to stare at a computer screen to do training where somebody is reading a PowerPoint slide. I mean, that's reasonable. <laughs> I don't want to do that. I don't think anybody wants to do that, frankly. And, and honestly, the people who develop training in that way, they don't want to do it either. I mean, it may, it, <laughs> nobody, nobody enjoys learning that way. And nobody really enjoys teaching that way either. We just don't necessarily have great other models. So a very simple way I try to help learning folks, I mean, where I spent most of my career actually, think about learning a little differently is to start with, you know, what story you're going to tell here? What's, what's, you know, what's the story that we're going to tell? What's the story behind this? Why, why do we need people to know this? So if we think about like traditional, uh, the, let's say IT security training, something that everybody has to do every year to make sure that your organization is ni nice and Fort Knox around security. Completely reasonable ask, by the way. It's not that there's anything against that. But, you know, I think the people who do that content well, you could ask them, well, why, why do people have to do this? And their, their answer is not because you have to, which is, I think, an unhelpful answer, but because there's a story to tell here about, about a community of professionals collectively keeping each other safe. Oh, that's different. That's not because I have to do it or because the big boss person tells me I have to. It's because if I don't play a part in keeping my own data and the data of my colleagues safe, we all kind of suffer together. There's a story there and it's a human one and I can show it in vignettes. I can show it with a little bit of, of drama behind it. You know, a very simple, very, very simple practice is to institute user feedback on every single thing one does. And in almost every aspect of modern people functions or HR functions, we have automation now that can do this in various different kinds of surveying ways. And I don't mean survey, create so much surveying that you're, you know, surveying fatigue, you have survey fatigue, but rather constantly ask your users, your customers, whether or not they be candidate, employee, departing employee, all those things. Ask them what you can do to make it better. Doesn't have to be long. Doesn't have to be in depth. Doesn't have to be over-serving. It just has to be this, this natural inclination to always ask, did this work for you? Did what we provided help you? What can we do to make it better? That little bit of constant automation already moves you into a let's just call it a design-focused mentality. And it will actually help make things easier because you'll realize the things that you're, some of the things that you're doing aren't actually making much of a difference. And some of the things you're, you're not resourcing or not spending time on, if you spend a little bit more, it would make a much bigger difference than you think. 
To wrap up our session, I asked Mark the same question I ask all of our guests here on New World of Work. What's the best mistake you've ever made? Very early in my career, I learned a really important lesson about client management. I had a customer that had other consultants, including myself and my team, involved in providing work, like service. And I I realized over the course of a service cycle with this customer that the other consultants were positioning themselves against me and my company, my team. And I, I lost some degree of trust with the buyer, who in this case was a CEO of a small, a small tech company in Vancouver, Canada. On principle, I got very upset on principle. And I decided that I was going, that literally we were not going to bid for a new piece of work that the, that the CEO was going to vend on. And I recall, I, I said, I'm not interested in, like I literally said, I'm not, we're not going to pitch the piece of work. And, and the CEO got very upset. Um, I mean, all right, but it's basically losing us business. And, but I, I mean, I explained to the, I explained to the CEO why and why I didn't feel good about, about the situation. And what I realized in that lesson was that it's not that I was acting on principle, which I would not go back and, and do differently. But what I hadn't done was really sat down with the CEO and had a heart to heart. Like I, w- I was, I was scared of directly dealing with my end customer here. Cause I was kind of working through the other consultants, kind of the other, the other people. And I felt that they were being manipulative and, uh, I pulled us away. I was, I was a little bit like, I'm just going to back off here. We ended up getting asked to pitch the work anyway. We did, we went and pitched the work. I think we even got it. And the lesson I learned, or again, it's a mistake. The mistake I made was don't just operate in the defined swim lane that the world is giving you. And by that, I mean, like I was, I was trying to play via this other consulting group. And my, my intuition was this, I, I need to talk to the CEO. They really didn't want me to talk to the CEO because they were wanting to maintain control of the situation. And I was young and I was trying to be a good little consultant and be like, okay, I'm, I know my place. I'm not going to disrupt my place. But the one thing I still have, I guess, control over is to not keep engaging, right? What I take with me now about that is, you know, swim lanes are just like little beads floating on the top of the water. <laughs> and uh, if you're, if you're going to change something, you got to not worry about the beads on the top of the water. Because I'm a swimmer. My wife's a swimmer. I can duck pretty easily under the beads on top of the water. I mean, I can't really... If they're painted on the bottom of the pool, it's a little harder, but nobody's going to rise up like Poseidon underneath the water and grab my foot if I cross over another swim lane. And had I just like not quote unquote played by the rules in this circumstance and directly called the CEO and say, hey, what's up, man? Like, I don't know what's going on here, but this is not feeling right. And I don't think this is working out very well. Like, what do you want to do about it? It wouldn't have had the same problematic and kind of overtaxing, frustrating result. And I still move myself to practice this because I am still kind of at heart. I like, to, I like to play by the rules as much as I can. But each time I have another sat in that captain's chair, like we talked about earlier, I challenge myself to not worry about swim lanes as much as I used to. And along the way, it's helped me to not worry about the swim lanes as much as I used to. 
Mark's perspective on people operations is dynamic, refreshing, and disruptive. After our conversation, I'm feeling inspired to upgrade my mindset and change the way I view the world of people operations today. Here are a few of the key insights I'll be taking away from this episode. First, the word performance doesn't have to apply to only actors or musicians exclusively. As Mark suggested, we can choose to view everything we do in our professional lives as a performance in a sense. This is a perspective I think we can all take inspiration from. Second, the idea of viewing a business as a product in itself can help us unlock new methods of improving every day. As people leaders, it's important that we avoid complacency by continuously finding new and better ways of doing things. And finally, learning and development doesn't have to be boring. Mark suggested transforming corporate training into engaging storytelling sessions that will spark people's curiosity and infuse an element of humanity into the session. It's been proven that stories are an excellent tool for learning, memorizing facts, and empathizing with others. So weaving a compelling narrative into a training session will ultimately benefit everyone. Thank you for listening to New World of Work, the podcast exploring the new frontier of the modern workforce through an international lens. We hope this episode served to expand your horizons and open your mind to a new perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so that we can reach more listeners. I'm your host, Reese Black. See you next time.